the startup, grow up, and scale up journey. This is the Pain of Scale, the Notion Capital Podcast. I'm Paul. This is the Notion Capital Podcast, our Pain of Scale Series 5. And today, revenue growth, going from A to B to C, the inflection points in the startup journey to success. We have a fantastic guest for this today, and, and I've noted a potential connection between him and me. I mean, we are a few years apart, and I know he started his journey on a Sharp MX ATK that had that distinctive cassette player on the side. I was probably still playing on my ColecoVision at the time. But he then moved to Commodore Computers, and whilst I was cutting my teeth on a Philips MSX, you know, that one had an external cassette player. It was not fun. Our connection, the Commodore connection, exists because I next moved to the computer that I truly fell in love with, the Commodore Amiga 2000. So, Stephen, who is the Commodore geek we have with us today? <laughs> this is Andy Lever, and Andy is an operating partner at Notion. He joined us really just at the beginning of this year, and he's had a profound effect. He's one of the most experienced SaaS executives in Europe. As a general manager, as a sales lead, as an organizational leader for businesses, from Series A and B through rapid growth to IPO at you know, four or five companies, Hortonworks, Workday, Success Factors, and Bizarre Voice, and Ariba. He's had an amazing career, which he started with Microsoft and, and GE. So really imbued within this world, and yeah, a bit of a technology geek. In fact, he was giving me a, a tour of some of those, his museum of devices just earlier on today. Oh, no um, way. I'm yeah, so jealous. <laughs> so prior to Notion, he also did three years as a seed investing partner at Crane Venture Partners. He's had a profound impact on Notion and many of our portfolio companies, helping us drive even better success across the board. He is also the guy you want on your quiz team. When a question comes up on 80s pop music, he is like a walking 80s trivia encyclopedia. Is that oh, wow. right, Andy? <laughs> Andy, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. And it was good to see you earlier. So you did indeed get to see some of my old vintage tech, but I didn't show you my Commodore 64, which works, by the way. I should oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> He's there got go. all of these devices, even one that his father bought home when he was 10 years old, and he still got it there. Yeah, that's the Sharp MZ80K, which was my first love of computing with its flat keyboard and its tape deck and its CRT yeah. display, black and white. I loved it. But as soon as I saw a color computer, that's it. I moved on. But I still kept that. It still works and I still fire it up now again. It will blow up one day, but it works for now. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andy, welcome. And let's jump straight in. One of the topics we've talked about, which I think is really the basis of really what we want to cover today, is the inflection points that you see companies are challenged by. And you call this the, the rule of ones and threes. What do you mean by that? Yeah, good question. So I was vaguely aware of this, but I'll credit the kind of formulation of this with actually a gentleman I work with at Hortonworks called John Kreiser, who is now the CMO at Docker, actually. And it crystallized just a lot of things for me that all the companies I've worked with have been through these very important revenue boundaries, shall I say. And it tends to kind of really coalesce around exactly as it says, the ones and threes. So the 1 million, 3 million, 10 million, 30 million, 100 million revenue boundaries. And a lot of companies hit those revenue points and typically stall. And what I mean by that is not something's broken, but they just need to kind of take a breath and say, 
the people process tech that have got us to this point, how do we build on that to take us to that next revenue boundary? And I've met so many companies that have been stalled at different points in that journey and really want to unlock that next part of the journey to get to the, you know, 100 million is typically where you start to get to be a, a company that can IPO and, and be a billion dollar company. So that that's kind of the place that people want to get to. Are there particular warning signs that you, you think founders should look out for? Well, I think as you break it down, you kind of look at that journey of, you know, below a million, we all spend a lot of time looking at product market fit. And, you know, I'm sure you've met as many founders as me where they start to look at those signs to say, do we have product market fit? Are people paying for our product? Are those viral effects starting to take off? Do we see a lot of inbound and referral going on? I do people like our product, love it and tell everybody about it and they're getting value from it, demonstrable value. I think the next phase is that one to three where you get into the founder-led sales. And that's that three and beyond is the bit that gets really interesting where do you have what I call go-to-market fit? So can you scale beyond what I call the CEO privilege? You know, a CEO founder in a room has the ability to know everything that's happened, everything the product can and can't do, alter the engineering product timeline, and they can make deals in the room because they have the authority to do that. But can they effectively move that into their first generation sales team? I kind of loosely call go-to-market fit when a sales team can make a sale without the founder in the room. And I think that's a kind of pivotal moment in that one to three journey. We kind of build on it from there. So if the sub one is product market fit, the one to three is moving beyond the founder-led sales, finding the, the initial part of go-to-market fit. What comes next? What's the next inflection point? Yeah, and that's a lot of what we do at Notion now as well. That, as you know, we thought a lot about when you get to the classic 100K MRR or a million dollars ARIs, when you start to become typically around the, a Series A company. And I think for us, we spend a lot of time obviously working and getting to know seed, late seed stage companies. That journey from the A round to the B round and the B round to the C round is really, I would say, the 3 to 10 journey and the 10 to 30 journey. So if you think about that 3 to 10 journey when maybe the company is raising A round or a late seed is how do they build their playbook? for their go-to-market, and then start building that growth engine, but make it a repeatable process. And you think about that customer journey all the way from initial contact through to customer success and, hey, you know, we're up for re-election every year, that continual adding of value at the back end, i.e. never stop selling, mapping out that journey and starting to fill that journey in for organizations on the 3 to 10 journey and make it repeatable and move from that, as we just talked about, on the product market fit journey, looking for inbound and referral and people really engaging with the product and moving them more to a outbound repeatable process in a in a traditional function or if you're in more of the open source environment is all those signs that lead you to believe that you're building value now enough to start thinking about how you lay a value on top of the open source as well whatever model you choose be it open core support model or, or such like that's really the journey to 10 i would say the 10 to 30 as you get into a C round, which you move from the B to C, is really um, starting to think about, and now, especially as we're in this kind of COVID world, is there's a lot of talk about sales efficiency. So I start to think about my cost of acquisition. 
And I start to think about my lifetime value of customers and really start to think about those unit economics and how I get out of where I started. So I start to think about which verticals am I in? Which geos am I in? What size of customer am I serving? And then start to break out the product set in terms of layering on new value as well. And that's the 10 to 30 journey. As you go beyond the C round and you start the 30 to 100, that's really the big scale then. As you start to think about organizations where they have depths of management, you know, managers, managing managers, and you start to have a more mature organization. And really for me, I think that 30 and above is where your company culture really comes into play. Do you have enough identity as an organization where you get beyond that first 50, 100 employees where I think we all know from the very famous book, Tribes, you can only know around 50 people. And what I mean by now is I can walk down the hall, shake your hand, know who you are, know about your family, ask you what you did at the weekend. Then you start to get to that levels of, I don't quite know these people, but your company culture transmits to make sure that everybody has those same values and those same ways of doing things. All those barriers, things can go wrong. And I I think for me, I said people process tech very glibly, but your updating of the tech that sits behind this. So, you know, your CRM, your marketing automation, all of those systems will need upgrades as you go. You may start very humble with maybe an open source solution, but you need to upgrade as you go. The processes we talked about, so really a repeatable process with metrics. In fact, the call I did just before this call was to interview a RevOps person for one of our portfolio companies that is kind of midway between A and B round now. So they're starting to build that growth engine and get that repeatability. And they want somebody that can sit there and measure that for them and make sure it keeps them honest and tells them they're on a good path as well. And the people side is often you find companies as you go through these barriers, people can end up in the biggest job of their career. Yeah. And they'll need help. They'll need mentoring. They'll need coaching. They'll need training. And maybe you'll need people as you start to think about filling in the C-suite, people that come in that can knit parts of this together. You know, so I've held, for instance, the CRO function before that can bring together that whole customer journey to really bring all of those metrics together in that process. So I think of it as the revenue boundaries, but also that journey from A to B and B to C for each of those organizations. You paint a really, really good picture in terms of the evolution of the kind of the go-to-market. At the same time, of course, I, as the founder, um, evolving and going through a, a very, very rapid learning curve and change. At a senior leadership team and at a board level, I might never have run before. I'm just wondering from you reflecting on your experience of what that journey looks like for a typical founder from the seed to the series A to the to the series B. That's a journey for many founders. And I and I say this looking at it from the point of view of first of all, many founders are product people that we run into. They had a vision for a product. And they're very good at articulating that vision and getting to product market fit. So if you think of a company that's got to a late seed or an A, they've been through that discovery. And at an A round, they start to think about, one, their leadership team, but two is their relationship with investors and the board. And if I kind of break that down, first of all, on the board, the cadence and kind of structure of that board and the data that's presented is an evolution. 
And a lot of founders have to think about, okay, what are the key metrics I want to report to the board, but also what do I need back from the board? So where do I need guidance and where do I need help? And also how can I get the board to mirror the things that I need? So as a very technical founder, for instance, one of the things I look at is, do I need, as well as my investors on the board, do I need those non-execs to be people that have walked in my shoes, first of all? So somebody who says, you know what, I've been on this journey. And when you tell me about how I want to organize my product and my engineering teams, what should that look like? And what does good look like? But also then the bit that I'm not as comfortable with is the go-to-market. So when I start to set goals and think of targets and the metrics that I'm tracking, who from a board level is going to be my mirror on that? And who's going to help me think of what data needs to go into the board pack? And by the way, I meet a lot of companies at Around and they say to me, oh, our board pack's terrible. You know, we go along, we present all this data, and I'm not sure whether it's the right data, the wrong data, what I should be talking about. And I kind of say two things behind that. One is, what's the story you're trying to tell? Just throwing data at people doesn't tell a story. There needs to be a story as to why am I telling this data and what does the data tell us? But behind that is, what are good trends? Yeah, what are trends that you should be looking at that tell you that you're going to successfully go through some of the boundaries that we talked about earlier in that journey? And that's kind of what I think is important in the board is making sure you have the right composition of the board, the right data pack, and you're having the right conversation. So maybe the board could be split into half is, I gave you all the data, these are the trends, this is why I think it's good or bad. And the other half is, these are the key topics that I want to discuss. Because I think too many board meetings in the early stage just turn into looking at data and not actually looking at key strategic issues for the business. Just to flip onto the building out that senior team, I hope people listening to this have seen the notion unicorn trajectory and the correlation between the hiring of how much experience they've got and when you hire senior people into the team and the success of your company correlates to that. But also is to start thinking about filling out that C-suite. Now, I think it's very tempting earlier on to hire some super skilled person that's maybe the company couple of generations ahead of you that has got a C title that's going to come in and magically be able to make all of those things happen within that function. What I would suggest is, I think it's somebody who has built something like that rather than inherited it, is going to roll their sleeves up and really know the gnarly issues they've got to go through in terms of building that function. And some of those functions are functions that the leadership team have never done before. So what does a good finance function look like? What does a good HR function look like? What does a good marketing function look like? And there are many strands of each of those functions that they need to think about. And some of them are just not now. Some of them are later because maybe you can't even afford them. And then some of them are ones that as you mature, you're going to need. So, you know, I just mentioned RevOps, you know, I think RevOps is becoming more and more important earlier in a company's life cycle because it knits together the story between marketing, sales, customer success, and finance. And that's a really good thing to have in an organization. So those are some of the things I think about in terms of board and senior hires. Thanks, Andy. I I was going to drill into the kind of RevOps piece and, and a couple of other kind of slightly more granular challenges or capabilities that founders need to look at as they go from C to A, A to B, B to C, which are around the evolution of marketing, the thinking on pricing, and the importance of the centralized revenue operations function. How do you see that kind of evolving? And I know everybody is slightly different, but I wonder if you could just kind of paint a bit of a picture in terms of some of the things that founders really need to think about in those three categories. Strangely, can I start with pricing? Yeah, of course. Because pricing, I think, is one of the hardest things for founders to get right. So 
I'm kind of smiling as I say this because a lot of founders doubt the value of their own products, okay? And what I mean by that is when in the early days of SaaS, people would write contracts and say, hey, here's the metric we use for how we price. And when we get to renewal, if you just pay the same, we're really happy. But the, the fact is, two things have changed in that journey, say the first 12 months of that contract. One is you've added a ton more value to that software that wasn't established in the price 12 months ago. So you've kind of got the right to go back and say, look at all the other stuff we've added into the software because that's SaaS constantly adding value. And the second thing is, they may push you and say, hey, you know what? This should be cheaper because the cost of compute, the cost of storage is all going down. But that's more than offset by RPI, CPI, plus all the value you've added back in. And the fact if you can establish and say, look at the value we've created, I've seen it on the face of founders over and over again. When you go back and say, we're actually going to charge you more, that this is a good test of product market fit as well. They come back and go, yeah, that seems fair. Actually, you, you are providing a lot of value and we see all the extra things in the in the product. So I would say to founders, don't be scared of going back and establishing value to say, we're creating a lot of value for you. And hence, we have the opportunity to go back and ask you for more money. The other thing on pricing, though, is I think pricing has evolved a lot in models. And we see now a lot of thought going into what is the proxy for success that we use. So it could be the bigger the organization, the more employees you've got, the more revenue you've got, then of course, we're going to provide more value to you because you're a bigger organization. That's kind of on the simplistic side. But now we see other models coming along in terms of support on open source or transactions on APIs or a number of integrations on integration API software as well. So I think there's lots of different ways to think about how you price. But behind that, one of the other things I would also say is the temptation is to say, hey, our software is great. People will come and use it and they'll just keep consuming it. Have a think about what your investors want, which is some actual way of saying, hey, we know where the revenue is going and we know what's going to be booked. So you need to think about that initial contract, what's the baseline, and then how do you layer value on top of that? Because if it's just a pay-as-you-go model, you can end up in a world of hurt in terms of tracking that and actually producing your revenue forecasts that go with it as well. So pricing is becoming a bit of an art. And I think the sooner you can get that better in your organization, the better. And you know, we know, Stephen, there's, there's companies that specialize in this that can really help you unlock that value to make sure you're getting, you're not leaving money on the table in that journey as well. I'll give a big shout out because we've got, um, in a couple of weeks time, we've got an episode coming up with Rob Littest, who's one of the pricing analysts at ProfitWell, who are my go-to, yeah. which is a great listen. But I'm, I'm with you. I think this is one of the most underutilized growth strategies. Yeah, figuring out your pricing and your monetization strategy mm. and, and understand the proxy drivers and understanding that exchange rate for value, if you like. Another area we've talked a lot about is the role of product marketing. And, and again, I know this changes depending on the type of business, but I, I just wonder if you could kind of paint a little bit of a picture in terms of, well, one, the importance of product marketing, but how that might evolve through the life cycle as well. I mean, the first thing I say about product marketing is in Europe, we're pretty bad at it. With apologies to all product, any product marketers listening. <laughs> and, and being a former product marketer myself, I, I, I know exactly where you're coming from. I'm going to blame you. No, I'm not. I was going to say I'll blame you <laughs> But we just laid to the party. I think we haven't seen the value in this until recently. And you know, I've been fortunate to see some orgs that do this really, really well. But to me, we get product marketing and product management very confused i.e. product marketing to me is who is the person that's living with the customer and understanding the usage of the product, 
what's good, what's bad, where the friction is, what needs to be accelerated on the roadmap, how you use a customer advisory board to drive the roadmap, how you use MPS to unlock, to feed back into the sales cycle, say, these are the things you should focus on in terms of selling. So to me, a really good product marketing person lives in that space right between the customer and product and really, really understand all facets of what we're doing well, what we can do better, what sales should be really focusing on, and then feeding back into product to say, hey, these are where I think customers want us to go next. I just think that's something that we tend to build what we think what the customer wants, not necessarily what they do want. And I've been encouraging a lot of companies I work with to establish customer advisory boards, for instance, early to really get close to customers and execs to get close to customers rather than sales be the only point of contact with customers because that can often skew the results of this. Our very next episode coming out next week is with Martina Lorchenko, who is the partner at Silicon Valley Product Group responsible for product marketing. She really lays it there and it's a, it's a very compelling episode and, and I'm with you. It's a critical function and, and one we really need to invest in and we will, as Notion, be investing in over the next 12 months. And then the third one of my questions was around the centralization of revenue operations. You know, it's interesting when I, when I think about my career in terms of working in SaaS, you know, we had sales ops and we had marketing ops and then we had success related ops. And then we had separate operations functions, but now this is all centralized and it's becoming a critical function, isn't it? I think it's someone who can knit the whole story together because to me, as we talked about building the growth engine, how do we know if it's working? You know, and I sit in too many meetings where sales look at marketing and go, where are the leads? And marketing look at sales and go, well, we're giving you leads. Why aren't you accepting them? And then customer success say, where are the deals coming through? And I think that whole story needs to be joined up. And, you know, in a traditional funnel, as you go from AQLs to MQLs to SQLs to SALs, is just to say, one, do we even know what they are? Two is, do we know how they convert? So if we, what we put in the top, how much comes out the bottom? And three is, actually turn that into revenue as well. So to me, a lot of companies resort to the, hey, we think marketing is doing well, sales is doing really well, customer success is doing really well in isolation. But they don't have the ability to tune that model because they don't have all the data connected together. And I, some of the best-in-class companies know, even simply, you know, hey, I, I've got a month to go in the quarter and I've got a million to do in revenue. What do I need to do? Yeah. So are there deals I can accelerate? Are there things I can do on marketing side? Are there things in customer success? And they have the data to be able to do that. And a really good RevOps person, I almost think is kind of telepathic with the CRO or COO, because they will sit in meetings and make recommendations as to where we can tune the engine, things we can do better. And when it comes also to planning, so I, I imagine a lot of companies now are starting to think about how we're going to finish 20 and planning for 21 is... How much discretionary marketing spend should we have? I.e., when we run campaigns, how are they going to convert? And, you know, we just hinted at it earlier. Marketing's got a lot more complex now. There are many, many strands to marketing. So a lot of early stage companies resort to events and PR. Okay. And then we fall into the classic, hey, we know half of our marketing spend is working but we don't know which half, which is the classic gag. But the question is, is now we do know the data. So we can start to look at, hey, if we're going to run a content lay campaign or webinars, are we going to have a virtual booth? How are those things going to convert? How do we get them into sales's hand? And then think about all that conversion ratio all the way through to say, what can we do in terms of revenue for 21? But I would say, start at the end result. 
Where do you want to be? And then work backwards. And that will inform you as to, do you have the right people in the right place? How many more people should you be hiring? Do you need to actually think about the efficiency of your organization as well as you move through some of these revenue boundaries? And also test your tech. You know, it may be that your marketing tech is only going to scale to $3 million, $5 million, $10 million. Do we, should we think about changing that in Q4? And I think RevOps carries a lot of responsibility for that. So it's a pretty critical function, I would say, even at the A round to start thinking about. Interesting. And it's also, you know, when you're in a role that, that is that pivotal to building the growth engine, that's a great place to be. And so I think for, for anybody who's working in and around sales, who's highly numerate, this could be a, a great next step or career path. I wanted to dig into a little more of the customer life cycle. We've got the growth engine working, sales and marketing really working well together. We've got our RevOps machine. But actually, that's just the beginning, isn't it? Because the companies we work with are recurring revenue businesses, annuity businesses. And um, keeping the customers and those customers being successful and growing is critical. I was just wondering if I can dig into your thoughts in terms of the importance of understanding the customer life cycle and how customer success, NPS or other success measures really kind of come together to drive retention, revenue expansion and activating referrals? Yeah. Big question. I'm sorry about that. Got carried away. <laughs> it is. And before I dive into that, can I just say relative to RevOps, the best RevOps people come from non-traditional backgrounds. And I say that because the best RevOps person I ever worked with, when we stopped working together. I said, by the way, where did you study? Your finance acumen is amazing. And he said, I didn't. My degree is in zoology. Okay. So <laughs> don't always think inside the box in terms of people that are going to be good at spotting these trends, because sometimes if you're too close to it, you can't see them. It's just a piece of advice. Good advice. Non-traditional people are often very good at this. You know, I've worked with some really good customer success people, really, really highly skilled at this. And, you know, watching them operate, you learn a lot. And using MPS to unlock insights into the kind of post, I say post-sale, but that's not fair because you're always selling, but it's customer success, yeah. NPS, first of all, if customers are really happy, you earn the right to ask them for referrals. And I think we're always a bit shy of that. You know, who else do you think could get value from what we do? And if you ask it, often they'll say, oh, I'm really good friends with, you know, my, my equivalent at this organization, this person, I'll happily introduce you to them. Yeah. So I think we shouldn't be afraid of that in terms of referrals. And by the way, we all know our customers are our best salespeople. Yeah. By far. Because guess what? You're a salesperson. They're not. So they're going to believe them more. So let's use that. And then secondly, NPS is a really, really good way to figure out if you do it granular enough, what people value in the product, what they're really paying for, and the bit that if you took it away would be painful for them. Okay. And I think that one feeds back into the sales cycle. So that's what you should be selling for new business customers, because that's the stuff that's really being valued. But also it allows you to start unlocking adjacent parts of that when you think about one product development or upsells and cross-sells into that organization, i.e. where next. Now, word of advice, when you run a customer advisory board, don't let sales run it because they'll just lead with that. That's not the purpose of a customer advisory board. It should be probably led by product marketing and it gives it that kind of air of not directly being linked to a sales event because it should be a data gathering event. And then secondly is don't let NPS look like an overtly sales-led questionnaire. It should really be about where can we be doing better? And by the way, if you get an amazing NPS score, it's actually no news. 
He doesn't tell you anything. Yeah. So anyone who tells you we've got this perfect NPS score, it's like, okay, that's great. So where next? Because it doesn't tell you anything. So I think if your NPS score is amazing, you need to rethink it and drill more and harder because there will be parts of the product and parts of the process and parts of the customer experience that they will be unhappy with. If you're just getting good news, you, you haven't got opportunities for improvement. So yeah, you need to you need to mine for that, don't you? Yeah. I wanted to just to wrap up with maybe thinking a bit further forward in terms of your outlook for 2021 and beyond, and in particular in the implications of COVID and how that is affecting growth strategies. So first off is what's changed now? And then second, what are your hopes for 2021 and 2022, other than the COVID pandemic going away? I think we all hope for. I mean, there's a whole lot wrapped up in that question. I mean, the first thing I would say is I think the acceleration of cloud SaaS businesses for organizations is apparent. So anybody that's helping in that customer digitalization journey are getting a tailwind right now because companies, it's just shown them that guess what? We need to be far more nimble and we need to have a fully digital experience for our customers. So that's the first thing. So what does that mean? That means a lot of organizations now are actually finding that customers are leaning in more to say, we need to do more with you which is giving them growth opportunities. But then that also creates two problems. One is, how do I interact with my customers when I'm not seeing them physically? That's one thing. But secondly is, how do I manage fully remote teams? And I think we all know many teams have not gone back to the office yet and may not go back to the office until next year. In fact, I was on a call last night with a bunch of people in Silicon Valley, and most of them said, we're not going back to the office this year. Yeah, so Q4 will be fully remote for the vast majority of businesses. And I think that creates a couple of challenges. One is the health of your organization, because there are certain functions that really need interaction between team members to have that spark of creativity, but two is that osmosis of learning. And you need to think through is, and I think of customer success and engineering in particular, how do you make, how do you give them an environment where they can still feel that in a virtual way? So that's a challenge number one. As this pandemic goes on, think about how you make sure that you're addressing that. Don't think that everyone's super comfortable remote working because it will go in ebbs and flows. And I think you need to get ahead of that. So it's really good companies I've seen have actual task forces that think about remote working and the implications. Sales and marketing people tend to be more self-reliant. They will pick up the phone, et cetera. So you know, I worry about them a little bit less. The second part is in this new world, how do we interact with customers and prospects? And I start to see events being replaced by virtual events. And I've got mixed feelings about virtual booths and online demos, how they work. But I think there's some companies doing some really good things there. And I see the quality of the events going up is the first thing. But the second thing is, I think accessibility to senior people in organizations has become easier because of this. And I see time and time again, where the ability to reach that senior decision maker that either decides on a decision, funds a decision, influences a decision. I think they're they're more engaged, particularly if you have a really, like I say, if you're one of those cloud SaaS businesses that helps in the remote world, they're opening up. And, you know, as well as me, I've worked with some of the Notion companies, Series A companies selling to very, very large organizations. And they're moving up the decision stack to the C-suite because of the availability of people. So the advice I would give is don't be shy in terms of being able to sell at a slightly high level, because I think this opportunity is opening up to reach those people. And I know you're saying firsthand that 
effect at some of the companies you're working with who are both working hard on managing their remote teams and being innovative and creative in terms of how they're engaging customers and prospects. And it's having a, it's having a big impact, isn't it? Yeah, I feel... There are certain verticals that are in a world of hurt right now. And I think some of those will come back and maybe one or two businesses will suffer. But I also see a lot of companies doing very, very well this year, probably ahead of where they thought, you know, come February, March, we're all hunkering down, creating plans, what if plans, you know, should we be raising more money? How should we think about our cash runway? Should we be putting on ice all those hires? And a lot of the business I'm working with have actually come through the other way to say, hey, we're still cautious going into Q4 and planning for 21, but actually we're way ahead of where we thought we're going to be because the environment has proved out the value in this new digital first cloud-led world for our customers. And and they're leaning into that now. Thank you. We've talked a lot about the actual operation of building orgs and teams and joining this up and scaling to the next level. Just from an investor viewpoint, people often say, you know, hey, what are the changes you've seen in computing over the years? I think the story of computing is one of abstraction. You know, I think back to when I started in computing, it was writing machine code, and then we had interpreters, then we had compilers, and then we had windows of a command line, and now we've got voice assistants, and now we've got AI, you know, we're abstracting further and further away. And I look at that, and I think that just opens up more and more opportunity. And now in Europe, I see that the skills for all of those new areas of tech are distributed across Europe. You know, it's not like, hey, they're just distributed in hotspots of funding or hotspots of education. We see it everywhere. So, you know, you look at my history, I've been fortunate to work with a lot of US companies that have great outcomes and taking some of that and paying it forward into Europe. I can see now some of those large organizations starting to come through on the enterprise side. I always always felt that enterprise software was kind of the poor relation. And now seeing some of those names come through, both in Notion's portfolio and other people's, I think is all just really good for the ecosystem. So when you talk about my background, I love to feel that we have this conversation again in three years, five years, we've got far more experienced enterprise operators that have been on that journey that can pay that forward again into the next generation of founders. I just think we're on a good path right now with enterprise software in Europe. I agree. And for anybody out there, it's also worth saying that Andy is also an investor at Notion, not just an operating partner. And I know that you're keen to meet with some companies that fill into the kind of thesis that you just described and following that trajectory of ever greater abstraction and more enterprise value. Andy, thank you ever so much. You're welcome. I've enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure. 